Okay, this podcast is all about campaign financing. Are you curious about the rules? We will get into the rules. We will get into how they've evolved, who gives money, why they give money, special interest groups, and perhaps if there's time, we can also teach you how to follow the money yourself. As always, we have our resident history expert, Gene Anzanakis, here to re-educate us on U.S. history repeated. So campaign financing. What people don't understand about politics is a lot of the time it's dirty and it costs a lot of money to run for political office. It costs even more money for an individual to maintain their political office. And so a lot of what we see over the course of United States history until the 1970s is very murky when it comes to how people get elected. You know, when you think back to the pre-progressive era, you think about political machines, you think about, you know, the very famous Boss Tweed and Tammany Hall and the use of threats to get votes. Um, How people attained office was very different than it is today, and in some ways it's the same. But one of the things that we have to take a look at is the FEC. I really encourage everyone to go to FEC.gov. What FEC stands for is the Federal Election Commission. The mission of the FEC, and this comes straight from the website, is to protect the integrity of the federal campaign finance process by providing transparency and fairly enforcing and administering federal campaign finance laws. That's a lot to digest in that one little mission statement. If you think about why it was necessary to provide transparency, why it was necessary to fairly enforce and administer campaign finance laws, people were breaking the rules. People were not being truthful about how much money individuals, maybe unions, eventually PACs or super PACs were donating to a campaign. And if people really understood just how much money goes into the primary elections and then the general elections, I think it would turn most people's stomachs. The first call for reform comes during the progressive era. Now, for those of you who are not history inclined, the progressive era, we're talking about years 1890 to the 1920s. And one of the areas that the progressive era focused on was political corruption. You have these political machines that are running major cities, New York, Chicago, for example. And these bosses have the control of local businesses, elected officials, and what they say goes. They know who to talk to. They know who to grease to get certain things done in order to maintain the support of the people. You'll also have um, members of the hierarchy of the political machine waiting at docks where immigrants are coming off by the boatload handing them a piece of bread, telling them, vote Tammany. In a few years, when they are able to vote, they're going to remember who helped them, and they were very smart in doing this. And the progressive era kind of changes the way things were done. Instead of having these local patronages, so to say, 
they're eventually going to be replaced with civil service. And instead of people getting the job because of who they know, they will get the job because of what they know. Not to say that nepotism isn't still alive and well, it certainly is, but to a lesser degree. And there's a way to kind of stamp it out when it is noticed, when it is uncovered. Um, The FEC has played a critical part in the enforcement of these laws. And when you look at when the FEC was created, it makes a lot of sense. There were so many issues with the presidential election of 1972. And this was the election where Richard Nixon gets reelected. He defeats McGovern. This is also the beginning of the Watergate scandal. Now, it's not to say that there were not laws on the books. They were just routinely ignored. And so after the presidential election of 1972, the FEC was created. The FEC is led by what should be six commissioners. They are appointed by the president and approved by the Senate. They serve staggered six-year terms. Now, staggered terms are important. It ensures that there is always somebody on the commission with experience. Now, there are some rules as to who can be on the commission. No more than three from any one political party. There are currently three out of the six seats filled. There is one Republican, one Democrat, and one Independent. And currently, there are three vacant seats on the committee. The FECA stands for the Federal Election Campaign Act of 1971. And now this was amended or changed in 1974 post-Watergate scandal. Individual donors can't give more than 2800 to any federal candidate. There is a $5,000 limit to a PAC. A PAC stands for a Political Action Committee. And it set a maximum amount a candidate could donate to their own campaign of $50,000. Now, if you go to the FEC.gov website, you can see exactly how much money has been raised so far. You can see who is giving money to candidates. You can see the companies that are doing so. You can see the various names of PACs, of super PACs. So how much money has been raised so far? According to FEC.gov, as of June 30th, 2020, candidates had raised almost $3.8 billion. PACs raised $4.5 billion, and party committees raised $1.2 billion. That is a tremendous amount of money. You know, when you think about that question, well, who can be president of the United States? And the answer is, well, anybody could be president as long as they are a natural born citizen, they are 35 years of age and a resident for a certain amount of years, right? But not everybody can be president. Only people who are capable of raising that amount of money can be president. Who is giving money and why are they giving money? There are certain terms that it's really important for you to be knowledgeable about and familiar with. I mentioned PACs. Again, PACs are political action committees. 
They are created by companies, unions, environmentalists, and other interest groups in order to raise and contribute money to political campaigns and candidates. Now, why would companies, unions, environmentalists, and other interest groups feel the need to donate money to a political campaign or to a particular candidate as opposed to another one? Well, it has to go with what is going to serve their interests. It costs a lot of money to obtain political office. If somebody, if a company has given you X amount of dollars to your campaign, has created a PAC, has created a super PAC for your campaign, in a way you are indebted to them. It's a way to ensure the political party that is going to protect your interests will maintain power politically. Will they Push for laws that will help your business, hurt your business, help your bottom line, hurt your bottom line. And so it's important to understand why people are donating and to know who they're donating to. Then there is something called connected PACs. They tend to be connected to a company or a union. However, they have to separate their funding from their own treasuries. Only members of companies or unions can contribute to those types of PACs. Then you have non-connected PACs. Anyone can donate. Donations to candidates can exceed law limits. Two examples of non-connected PACs would be the NRA and Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood has both a PAC and a super PAC. Their PACs and super PACs advocate for reproductive health. Then you have the NRA. Their PAC is going to advocate for protections for the Second Amendment. And so these PACs have a purpose, and people who support that purpose will donate to ensure that what they want to see happen politically happens. Then you have a leadership PAC. It's a form of a non-connected PAC, a current or formal official. They can't use money for their own campaign, but it can be used for other candidates. Most members of the legislative branch have one. Now, this should raise everyone's eyebrows. The fact that almost every member of the legislative branch has a leadership pack. For many members of the legislative committee, they want to hold leadership positions. You know, when we talked about our legislative branch podcast, we talked about where the power lies and it lies in those committees. If you want a seat on the committee, you have to rub people the right way. And that often includes throwing some money in their general direction. It certainly benefits them to support support their colleagues, to spend money on their colleagues in order to get them the position that they desire. Some money is spent on some campaigns, but Some money is spent on luxury vacations, expensive dinners, flights, tickets to events. Why does someone have to do this in order to obtain a leadership position? Why aren't we focusing on putting the most well-equipped people on committees, people with experience in that area, people who have the ability to get the job done as opposed to someone who found the right person to send on a luxury vacation and then they got on a committee. So then you have super PACs. 
there are currently 2,400 super PACs on file with the FEC. Super PACs spent over $1 billion in the 2016 election. Contributions from these PACs, whether they be from individuals and groups, are unlimited, but they can't contribute directly to the candidate it is supporting. In 2010, there were two Supreme Court cases that gave an increase in the influence of super PACs. Those court cases are Citizens United and Speech Now versus the FEC. What those court cases decided was that the government can't restrict corporations or unions uh, from donating to political campaigns. However, those contributions must be disclosed. They must be put on file. Then you have special interest groups. Warnings against special interest groups go all the way back to James Madison and the Federalist Papers. So there's a history of anger towards special interest groups. Lobbying. It's an attempt to influence or persuade government officials to make certain decisions or to garner support for a cause. For example, the pharmaceutical and health industry spends on average $200 million a year on lobbying the federal government. Changing dynamics throughout American history led to the creation of various special interest groups, labor movements, teachers unions, veteran groups, um, the American Civil Liberties Union, just to outline a few. Now, the question has to be raised. How can we combat the influence of these groups? I actually think that's a great question that you, you end on. Knowledge is power, and the more people know, which is, which is kind of our noble purpose in, in even making these, these podcasts so that we can, we can educate people on, on what's going on. So there are websites where you can, you know, quote-unquote, follow the money, where you can go and you can see who's getting what money from who that represents you specifically. So, and don't just think like the president or the governor or you know, the congressmen or state senators in, or the senators, the U.S. senators in your state that would be there. But look at your local politicians, too. I mean, at the city, municipal, town levels, and see who's donating to their their cause, right? So you have followthemoney.org, just as it's spelled, followthemoney.org, gives you independent spending, lobbying details for candidates, political parties, you have OpenSecrets.org, which is a center for responsive politics. It's the nation's premier research group, according to them, tracking money in politics and its effect on elections, public policy, because a lot of it is policy. So you have a stance on a particular thing. If you know who's donating to your candidate or to a couple of candidates, you can either say, hey, I'm not happy with that and ask why. Maybe there's a reason that maybe you didn't consider, but you can go in and look at that. And then you have ProPublica.org npr.org, and the fec.gov, which Jean Ann spoke about a little bit today. But if you follow in the money and you know who's beholden to who, you have a pretty good idea of how they're going to, to vote in a particular thing, to sway or try to persuade even other people to vote a similar way. Then, knowing that, that allows you to make the decision on whether this is someone that you want to vote for, if they represent your values and how you would handle or you would want the vote to be cast for you. All of this, by the way, is public knowledge. On the federal level, you can go to senate.gov, house.gov, 
congress.gov. How did your elected officials vote? And this information goes all the way back on those websites to 1989. So there's no excuse not to know how your elected officials have voted in the past. On a more local level, you know, for example, we live in New York. In New York, you would go to newyorksenate.gov. You can also go to votesmart.org and you can type in the name of any politician and you can see how they voted, their position on an issue, their funding, who is contributing to their campaign. To make it random, you know, Jimmy just put in his local elected official. And so when that information came up, we saw Kathleen Rice. We saw how she voted. We saw her positions on the issue. We got a listing of the individuals or companies that have funded her campaign. The speeches that she's given, all of that information is there. It's public knowledge. And then you take that information into the voting booth. If we are going to find flaws in the process, we also need to look in the mirror first. What are we doing as eligible voters? Are we informed? First, do you know the name of your representatives? Do you know how that person is voting on your behalf? You know, people throw around that term, oh, the United States is a democracy. No, we are not. We are a democratic republic. We elect officials to represent us to vote on our behalf. Are they representing your interests? Have you contacted their office by phone, by mail, to let them know that you are dissatisfied if you are dissatisfied? They can get all the campaign contributions they want, but if they aren't getting the votes on election day, they won't remain in office. It's imperative that we be knowledgeable voters. Okay, so that is campaign funding. This is a lot of good information. Don't forget everything is online. And speaking of online, you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Parler. You can find us, just look up U.S. History Repeated. You can send us an instant message. You can send us, you can tweet at us. And you can request a lesson, something that you're curious about, that you didn't learn the first time around, or that you're learning the first time around now, and you'd like some clarification from, from us. It can be about an individual, it can be an event, it could be a period of time, it could be a war, it could be a presidential term, whatever it is that you want to do, shoot it over to it, and we'll, we'll try to put it into the rotation. But look forward to catching you guys again next time. This is Jimmy LaSalle and Jeannie Zanakis for U.S. History Repeated. Talk to you soon.